Good morning, Connecticut, and to our friends across the Sound. It's John Voquette, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Thanks for tuning in to our award-winning public affairs program for the people, bringing you even more information to help address concerns in our communities tied to youth, the economy, public health and safety, aging, education, and the environment. Well, we've got a few important dates driving today's program. First, we'll check in with an authority from St. Francis Care in recognition of November being Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Each year, more than 29,000 men will die of this disease. However, if diagnosed early, the five-year survival rate for prostate cancer is almost 100%. So we're going to talk about prevention and the warning signs you should look out for. Then we'll reach out to the thousands of Connecticut residents who are left behind following the tragedy of suicide. National Survivors of Suicide Day is celebrated November 21st, so we'll talk with representatives from both state chapters of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention about supports available to those survivors who go on following the suicide of a loved one. And we'll close visiting with representatives of the National MS Society Connecticut chapter to talk about the success of this year's benefit walks and bike events and to let you know how money raised is already helping support Connecticut families touched by multiple sclerosis. We'll be back with these segments and more on the award-winning For the People with me, John Boquette, right after this news. The importance of women making their own health care a priority will be the focus of the American Cancer Society's second annual Women Leading the Way to Wellness Breakfast on November 18th in Norwalk. The Women Leading the Way to Wellness Breakfast benefits the American Cancer Society's movement to empower Fairfield County residents, local business and community leaders, and health professionals interested in learning more about cancer prevention, early detection for women, and honoring local women who have been instrumental in the fight against cancer. For more information, call 781-420-6679 or email kara.bauer at cancer.org. So as we said in our uh, introductory remarks, uh, November is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, so we're turning uh, once again to our uh, fantastic pool of resources, uh, the doctors and medical professionals at St. Francis Care, uh, welcoming Dr. David J. Grew to the program. Uh, He uh, recently joined St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center as a radiation oncologist and is with Connecticut Radiation Oncology PC, uh, as we kind of chatted about before he turned on the microphone. Dr. Grew received his medical degree from Tulane uh, down in New Orleans and completed his residency at New York University School of Medicine and Radiation Oncology. Uh, so he has uh, had the benefit of uh, an experience of dealing with uh, a, a couple of really diverse populations of individuals as he uh, came up into his career. He's also board eligible in radiation oncology. And as we mentioned, we are talking about prostate cancer Awareness Month. Every year, uh, almost 30,000 men die from this disease, uh, and prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death of U.S. men. Uh, however, as we've talked about on this program before, if diagnosed early, there's some uh, fantastic results that uh, can come from that. Uh, so let's start uh, the conversation uh, with that piece of good news, Dr. Grew, uh, uh, certainly uh, probably even from the time you uh, thought of going into medicine until now, uh, the advancements in uh, early detection survivability have uh, really, really escalated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, What we see now is a, a lot of men going through their primary care physician to get screened, and that's either with um, a PSA, which is a simple blood test, 
or with a digital rectal exam where the prostate is actually um, felt by the, the physician to look for any nodules or anything suspicious. And we find that when we do this, we can actually detect cancer before it's spread to other areas and becomes life-threatening. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's the, uh, the colonoscopy. The, the other uh, the other elephant in the room after the the, the digital exam I guess that's a, an, another option yeah of course the colonoscopy really um, gives us more headway in detecting colon cancers mm-hmm. um, so certainly if you have a suspicious finding as part of a prostate cancer screening in the colon then that could be followed up with a colonoscopy and uh, that you know, if you detect colon cancer early enough, then uh, the treatment can be very effective as well. Mm-hmm. But in terms of prostate cancer, uh, the, uh, the the colonoscopy doesn't necessarily come into play. Not as much, no, not not as much for for prostate cancer. It's uh, it's very effective at detecting early colon cancer, but we don't use it as much for prostate cancer. Uh, so the uh, the ability to diagnose early, as we mentioned, is, is really uh, turning out some uh, almost perfect uh, results. It is. Yeah, it is. Um, so for men who have uh, organ-confined prostate cancer, that is disease that hasn't spread anywhere else in the body, they're going to have a lot of treatment options ranging from uh, surgery with, uh, with potentially with a robot, um, non-surgical therapies, including radiation therapy, um, and there's also some investigational therapies that are coming on the market. Uh, not really quite ready for widespread use, but um, certainly exciting exciting areas where uh, we, we hope to see a lot of spread in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and there is a uh, nearly 100% survival rate, uh, and... Uh, that extends out to about a 98% for men uh, diagnosed early um, at the 10-year point, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. It's really, um, when we compare results for prostate cancer to other more aggressive cancers, um, prostate cancer ends up being a, a very gratifying disease to treat because men do extremely well with treatment. As you said, success rates are well above 90% in in the best group of patients, the earliest stages. So, um, yeah, it, it's um, it's a very hopeful area for men who have a diagnosis of early stage prostate cancer. Hmm. Now, in terms of the uh, the later stage or, or or when it may begin to to spread, which is a game changer uh, in terms of uh, these these high statistics. Uh, is is there a kind of a, a uniform timeline arc of of development of prostate cancer where um, you know certainly have gone undetected for a year or five years? There's a, a much greater likelihood or a certainty that it's going to spread. No, I, we wish there was. Um, so, the, what we've learned is that every patient's different, and. Um, we try to look at um, things like the blood tests, and we look at uh, CAT scans and uh, MRI results and bone scans to give us information about where exactly the cancer has spread. But these really just give us a sort of a, a point-in-time estimation of, of the stage of disease. We really have a lot to learn about um, the trajectory of a disease and, and, and 
how quickly it will spread in different patients. So um, a lot of research is going on right now in terms of trying to develop a, a risk stratification to figure out which men are at particularly high risk to have the disease spread to other parts of the body. Mm. But otherwise, risk factors are, are, are quite broad. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and we have talked on the program before, uh, focusing in on the uh, uh, more uh, frequent incidents in the African-American population. Yeah, African-American men represent a demographic that you know, we, we really have to do better for them. And they, they tend to have a more aggressive disease and tend to have higher mortality rates as compared to white men who have the same exact diagnosis. We don't completely understand why. Uh, so we really uh, try to encourage as many men as possible to enroll in clinical trials. And once we have the results from those trials, we probably get a better understanding of what exactly is driving that difference in prognosis. And once we know that, we can kind of move into the therapy side and start targeting the treatment at those areas that are causing a, a disparity in outcomes. And, and do, do I have this right? Twice as many African-American men will die from prostate cancer as, as any other uh, individual diagnosed? You know, the, result, the, the results of studies have been somewhat variable. Mm -hmm. I would say that's kind of on the high end, but mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly higher. The exact magnitude of the difference is probably somewhat debatable. Okay. Well, what I'm gathering from our, our uh, earlier uh, conversation a few moments ago is that, uh, um, sadly, I guess you're still seeing too many, or, or, or you and your colleagues are seeing too many cases of um, cancer being discovered in individuals um, that started out in the prostate and then spread, but it didn't really start showing up uh, until um, it, it really started affecting other parts of the body. Yeah, it's really unfortunate when that happens. It's, it's not as common. By far and away, the most common situation is that men present to their doctor, they come in to their doctor when they're diagnosed, the cancer is confined to the prostate. But one, it, while it's uncommon that it has already spread to other parts of the body at the time of diagnosis, it presents a lot of challenges in terms of treatment. Um, as I was saying earlier, at early stages, almost all treatment modalities are on the table, surgery, radiation, and other non-operative therapies. If they're diagnosed with disease that's spread to other parts of the body, unfortunately, those treatments aren't really on the table anymore, and so start to look at other kinds of treatments. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you, you also mentioned uh, you know the PSA and the and and the physical test that uh, typically happens during every uh, gentleman's annual uh, physical. Um, but there also have been some concerns and questions about the PSA uh, test. Uh, can we delve into that just a little bit and maybe uh, set some people's minds at ease as to whether or not um, it is important to get or there, that it it could signal, um, I guess, a, a potentially f false positive or um, can lead folks into getting additional um, diagno uh, diagnostic, uh, into diagnostic situations that might not be warranted? Absolutely, yeah. So the role of 
PSA for screening for prostate cancer has been somewhat controversial going back the last few decades, really. It's been the subject of investigation for two large randomized trials. One was done here in the U.S. and one was done in Europe. Unfortunately, the results of those trials showed really conflicting results um, where one showed that there was a benefit and one showed that there wasn't. So um, that created a lot more controversy going forward. And so my opinion is that this really should be an open discussion between a man and his his primary care physician or his urologist in which the results of those trials are are out on the table and depending on the preference of that man in terms of what he would do for treatment for an early stage prostate cancer um, that should really guide the discussion going forward about whether or not he should be screened and how frequently he should be screened. Okay. Certainly men who are in a particularly high-risk group, who have a family history of prostate cancer, who have a history of elevated PSA, these, these men definitely should be continued to follow and screen. Um, and then my opinion is that, you know, generally speaking, uh, men should be thinking about this and kind of going forward have this ongoing discussion with their physician. Mm. Uh, we, we kind of uh, started the conversation talking about uh, how survivability has escalated with early detection, but something else that must be fascinating to you and your other colleagues um, is the the advancements in uh, genetic testing. And, and it really seems from the research that I've done that uh, there's really, it seems like your industry is poised for a breakthrough with genetics that that could also really be a game changer in terms of, uh, you know, pre-deciding uh, maybe a course of both uh, lifestyle prevention and diagnosis and, and testing and things like that. Um, for the last few minutes that we have, can you talk uh, kind of looking into the near and maybe distant future uh, and tell me what's happening on the front of uh, genetic uh, testing for prostate cancer? Absolutely. That's a great question. So I think genetic testing is going to be a really exciting and important field in terms of cancer detection going forward. And this kind of loops back into what we were talking about before, looking at particularly vulnerable groups of people who tend to have a, a more aggressive type of disease. You mentioned African-American men, specifically in prostate cancer. But this really goes across all types of cancer. We need to start somehow incorporating genetic profile and genetic testing into our screening analysis. And so while we cast a very wide net in prostate cancer screening with PSA and rectal exam, if we can somehow incorporate genetic testing into that, we can kind of get a little bit smarter about identifying not just men who have prostate cancer, but men who have prostate cancer that would potentially become life-threatening. I think that'll be the key going forward. At this time, it's, genetic testing is not quite ready for, for prime time, for mainstream, but there's certainly a lot of ongoing studies, a lot of great work being done. And once we're able to use those studies to identify these high-risk groups, I'm sure that that information will be incorporated into the very standard uh, recommendations 
by uh, primary care doctors all over the country. Mm. And and uh, it, 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 with an eye on prevention, uh, once a, a man gets to the age where he may be more susceptible to a, a prostate cancer, is it too late? to make a lifestyle change that might uh, aid in, in prevention? I mean, you, you, I guess the, the road to prostate cancer begins with uh, uh, lifestyle behaviors that could begin in childhood. Uh, is, is there really any way to uh, better prevent it aside from regular screening and especially for African-American uh, men to be uh, m- much more aware of uh, the increase and risk that they face? You know, I think it's never too late for a lifestyle change. There's not really great data to support that uh, once you have a diagnosis, that changing lifestyle necessarily improves outcomes from prostate cancer. Um, And specifically in the lowest risk group, that group that we had talked about earlier, who have a survival in excess of 90%, it's going to be hard to ever show that you can get better than that because it's just so good on its own. Mm. But that's not to say that, you know, improving your, your lifestyle with um, healthier diet and exercise won't extend your life, not just from prostate cancer, but from any other disease, you know, heart disease, uh, other types of cancer. Um, I think that that's a really important part of your ongoing health. And so, if, if you can make that change once you have a diagnosis of cancer, um, I think you're in good shape. And, and certainly uh, starting in the recovery mode from a much better position um, if you're in optimal health versus, uh, uh, you know, facing other uh, lifestyle-imposed health risks. So, um, yeah, exactly. Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. yeah I mean, and healthy patients are the ones who are going to be most fit to tolerate any, God forbid, in the event of a recurrence, mm. any necessary treatments that need to come down the, further down the road, the healthiest, uh, the fittest patients are going to be the ones who are best suited to get that kind of aggressive treatment that's needed to, um, to cure. Excellent. Well, very informative uh, conversation uh, with Dr. David Grew uh, this November Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, Dr. Grew is uh, works with the St. Francis Care Network. He also is part of Connecticut Radiation Oncology PC. Uh, we thank you for your input and great information, Dr. Grew. Great to meet you, and uh, we hope to talk to you again. Uh, thanks for the call. Well, as we indicated at the beginning of the program, International Survivors of Suicide Day is coming up on November 21st, and uh, there are events happening all over Connecticut, and we're here and so pleased to be talking with uh, the Northern Connecticut Chapter uh, Volunteer Director for the American Foundation 
for Suicide Prevention, Tom Steen. Uh, you may recognize his voice uh, from talking with us uh, way back in late September ahead of uh, a number of uh, suicide uh, prevention walks that were happening, the Out of the Darkness walks in Connecticut. We've got him back in studio now uh, because we're turning our attention to folks like him, folks like myself, uh, who are survivors and left behinders, as I describe myself, uh, of suicide, uh, because uh, for everyone who commits the act of suicide, there are many, many, many left behind uh, who have to cope with it uh, with so often and so few resources uh, or or knowing where to go, um, that it's great to hear that uh, Connecticut has such a developing, robust network of of support, particularly through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, chapters, both in northern and southern Connecticut. So, uh, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. So, uh, for your experience, uh, it, it's it's still very fresh. Just four years, uh, the loss of your son. Um, if if you don't mind, just uh, quickly uh, letting us know uh, how that situation happened. Well, I lost my son. Tyler, he was attending college uh, in Savannah, Georgia, and um, we were far away. Um, you know, the shock and horror of hearing that your son is dead is is without question the worst thing a parent can go through. Um, the days and weeks that followed were very traumatic on both my wife and my two surviving sons. Mm-hmm on where to go and how to get help and, and, and support. And to be quite frankly, John, there wasn't much. And so I, as, as I left the field of the YMCA and started collecting my pension, I decided to do something about it. And so I, um, I got involved and became really very entrenched in trying to prevent suicide. Um, and and it, it, it was a form of healing for me because mm-hmm. as I go out, I, I educate people on the risk factors and warning signs of suicide uh, in hopes that a family doesn't have to go on the same journey that mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the other side of it is folks like you and I who, who are left behinders, and I do like that phrase because mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly that, well, it's certainly that um, finding ways for us all to heal. Uh, the, it, having a loss like this creates a hole in your life that never gets filled. But as a survivor, you have to find a way to heal. And for me, getting out, talking about suicide, trying to reduce the stigma connected to it is so vitally important. Mm-hmm. And and by doing that, I I call it, I build a bridge over my hole in my life. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it's a forever building bridge. Yeah. And like today, I'm adding another board to that bridge. Yeah. And in, in hopes that a um, folks can heal from the loss of suicide, but more importantly, how do we prevent? How do we prevent it? Yeah. And so that's that's kind of been my cause and why I got so involved with the uh, foundation, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Mm. A one hundred percent preventable tragedy. Uh, were were you in any way initially heartened uh, to discover if you didn't know already? that there not only was a, a statewide resource, not only a national resource, but literally a global focus on people like you and me who are left behind after losing a loved one? Um, not until a couple of years afterwards, as I began to get more and more involved, 
uh, in the community and then talking about suicide and 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 it and, and the tragedy surrounding uh, suicide mm-hmm. and uh, so if, as I got in more involved, I found about uh, a, a date that's coming up here in November called the Nas- International Suicide Advisory. Uh, <laughs> advisory. I'm on yes, so many yeah. boards. Yes, uh, suicide uh, Survivors Program, and this is a program that's happening worldwide, mm-hmm. all over the world, where survivors like you and I get together for three, four hours. We break some bread, and my event on the twenty-first in Hartford will will be lo- will be held at two hundred Day Hill Road in Windsor, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and we we usually offer a light breakfast, and then we we have speakers who talk about their loss and and how they heal and then we break up into groups we watch a video and 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 really just kind of interlock arms with each other that know mm-hmm. that you're not alone there is support and um <clears throat> let, let's walk that journey together yeah, a little solidarity healing. action going on yes yeah. very much so so in the last uh, five minutes or so that we have with you this morning i want to uh, talk right to the rest of the survivors and left behinders who might be listening or folks who know them, uh, not only to support driving them to one of the Connecticut chapters of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, And in fact, folks, if you're listening, AFSP.org is the website uh, and the only initials you need to remember to begin uh, healing and coping and getting resources and learning about prevention. AFSP for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, that'll lead you to the Connecticut chapter in your neighborhood and the great resource and people like um, like Tom who uh, provide them. Um, so Tom, you know, in my case, and for most of the folks that I know in my situation, it was it, it was this constant and intense self blame. Everybody thought that there was something that they could have individually, never mind collectively, done. Uh, to make all the difference in the world and prevent it. And I guess the hardest thing to come to grips with is the fact that, um, you know, perhaps none of us could have done anything about it. Um, From your uh, trained perspective, uh, what are a couple of the most important things that you try to impart on survivors during those horrible, tragic, dark, bottomless days uh, that come after? It's really important, in my my opinion, to reach out for help, to not be afraid to talk about it. And for those friends and family and supporters of some of a recent person who's lost somebody's suicide, not to be afraid to talk to them. Uh, I think society's like, oh, we shouldn't talk to them because that make them hurt more. And and actually, it's the other way around. Person heals when when family and friends and coworkers, um, you know, offer their condolences and stay connected. And, you know, when you, when you lose somebody's suicide, the first few weeks you hear from a lot of people, there's, you know, there's services and depending on your religious belief, um, where your loved one goes or cemetery, mm. what have you services, but then you're alone, mm. you're all alone. And so that, so I, I, uh, I, for the folks that are listening today, that that we are a society that when when a tragic loss like this happens, it, it, uh, we need to stay connected. We need mm. to reach out and help. Uh, 
those who who have um, have experienced a re- recent loss go to the AFSP uh, website. There are support groups throughout our state. I think there's a dozen of them now. They're all volunteer run, and and they're fellow survivors, and, and that really just meet on a monthly basis to mm. talk about healing and how to stay connected. We also have our two chapters in Connecticut program called um, the the Survivor Outreach Program, which is a program where two volunteers will go to a, a newly uh, law, uh, lost yeah, survivor yeah. lost person yeah. uh, or family and speak to them. Just talk about the loss and it's okay. And yeah. and we will all, uh, and through our experiences share with them how they might think about finding ways for them to heal themselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to, it's, it's sad to say that I think one of the things that contributes so much to the stigma is, is being so afraid to say the wrong thing. Uh, but there's very little wrong that you can say. That's correct. It's really just, you know, reaching out and talking. And and for mine, for my loss, my wife and I, we love to talk about Tyler because mm-hmm. we talk about the great memories. He was yeah. a great man of 21 years, but uh, he left us, and his he left us because of his reasons, not because of anything we did. I I always share with folks, you know, did you how, did you know Tyler was really in trouble? No, we didn't. He mm. he had woven a, a a blanket of deception around him that no one could see, even his mm. closest friends. Mm. So so, as as we as we move through our days, weeks, and months, and now years of healing, we've we've become to realize that they were they were really his troubles, and um, and for us it. And for me, the other folks take the different roads. But for me, I want to prevent it. I don't want folks to have to go through mm. the same thing I'm going through. Well, if you're out there listening uh, and you are yourself or you know someone who's a survivor of suicide, uh, we encourage you to uh, celebrate International Survivors of Suicide Day, including the event coming up in Hartford on November 21st. Uh, Tom is running it, uh, and it's all part of the uh, national initiative under the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention the two Connecticut chapters, and the many international networks that are all working in concert to try to rid uh, not only our state and our nation, but our entire uh, world of this 100% preventable tragedy uh, that is suicide uh, from the perspective of uh, a suicide survivor myself and our guest uh, Tom Steen this morning of the Northern Connecticut chapter of uh, AFSP. Uh, We thank you for uh, being part of the program this morning, Tom, and for your great uh, information. And uh, once again, our our sympathies uh, to you and your family on your loss. Do you love Connecticut? If you do, there are hundreds of nonprofit agencies, community groups, and grassroots causes that would love to have your support. You can learn about many of them through LoveCT. Just go to our radio station website, hit the event guide tab, and click on to LoveCT to help the many causes supported by Connoisseur Media. I'm Director of Public Affairs, John Voquette. We'll be back to the award-winning For the People right after this news. 
Connecticut NOFA's Whole Farm Planning Certificate course is designed to help the 68% of new farmers who didn't grow up on a farm realize the farm of their dreams. The state's Northeast Organic Farming Association is accepting applications through November 21st for the program starting December 5th. This 10-week intensive Whole Farm Planning Certificate course provides new and aspiring farmers with the classroom and hands-on training they need to plan and manage successful farm businesses. For additional course information, contact CT NOFA at 203-308-2584 or just visit ctnofa.org. We're now joined by Jania Padilla. Uh, she is with the Southern Connecticut chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the founder of the Sergeant Walter Padilla Memorial Foundation. Jania, uh, welcome to the program and, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, John. Uh, first of all, for folks that may have uh, joined us uh, while we were talking to your uh, Northern Connecticut uh, colleague, we want to remind them that International Survivors of Suicide Day can change your life. It's one day a year when people affected by suicide loss gather around the globe at events in local communities to find comfort and gain understanding as they share stories of healing and hope. Survivors Day 2015 is happening Saturday, November November 21st, uh, and uh, we would like to uh, remind folks that there are places to go uh, here in Connecticut uh, to uh, gather with others uh, as we kind of uh, unofficially dubbed us all kind of left behinders uh, as as I am and as uh, is our uh, guest, Yania. So, uh, Yania, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming down and uh, getting on the line with us. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that y- you have found are are helpful to survivors of suicide uh, in, in your experience. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the, the Memorial Foundation. Um, for, uh, for folks uh, who are uh, paying attention and, and know that Saturday, November 21st is Survivor Day, um, what's the easiest place for uh, for them to go to learn about uh, activities or, or, or somewhere they can go on that day? Well, for the uh, Survivor's Day program sponsored by AFSP, you can go to AFSP.org. Here in Connecticut, for Southern Connecticut, our um, event will be at the Fairfield Museum and History Center uh, at 30 Beach Road in Fairfield, and it's from 12 to 4. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, your situation, uh, Jania. Um, uh, tell us your story and what has infused you with such uh, passion to not only uh, represent uh, half of the state with the uh, AFSP, but also to uh, establish uh, a foundation of your own. Well, uh, my brother Walter was in the Army, and he... Um returned from Iraq in 2005, and he was not okay. He had post-traumatic stress, but, you know, we thought he was doing okay with it. I mean, he was a very vibrant, artistic young man, um, very popular, very, you know, loving. He was a funny guy. Um, So we thought he had it well under control, and um, he took his life on April 1st of 2007, and we were all surprised and devastated, um, my family continues to deal with the ramifications of 
of his death. And um, in my search for healing, I um, it was in connecting with other survivors of suicide loss that I really found my own voice. Um, I really did not want to have other families go through what my family had it was going through. And I found that my friends, uh, you know, as loving and as gentle as they were with me, really didn't have a way of connecting with me around suicide. Um, so I discovered the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I went to my first uh, Survivors of Suicide Day event, and it was life-changing, just being able to be with other people who had gone through what I had gone through and be able to mourn with them um, helped me see that continuing on was still possible, that even though we were left behind, we could still move forward, if that makes sense. Um, so I became involved with AFSP, I became involved with AFSP, and I have been ever since. The uh, you kind of touch on a, on an interesting phenomena that that happens. Uh, I, I would imagine with a lot of people uh, when they're suddenly faced with the news or the call uh, that a loved one has committed suicide. Um, everything goes internal somewhere in your head. You know that there's millions of other people that have been through that. A at some point, uh, that realization has to hit. But the idea about seeking out others that have been through it, um, it, it, it is hard to find sometimes. And, and it's and it's incredible that, that you were able to find it and then turn it into um, such an incredible uh, effort and means of support for others. Uh, but the other thing that you pointed out that's really important is um, how awkward and and troubling it is for friends and, and co-workers and, and neighbors and loved ones uh, who have not been touched by suicide to be able to come forward and try to be comforting or say the right thing or do the right thing because um, th that empathy factor is, is so critically important as you've discovered. Um, yes, and I find too that with any unexpected death, um, the grieving process is, is already complicated, but suicide is its own special type of hell, uh, mourning a suicide death, uh, because you're, you're left feeling guilty. Um, and, you know, you're wondering what, what did you miss, what could you have done, um, and the anger. Uh, I, I know a lot of survivors don't um, feel comfortable talking about the anger. There, I, I certainly felt a, a strong anger towards my brother. Uh, and I went through my own internal process of having to forgive him and having to forgive myself. And that's not something a lot of people want to really get involved with because it, it is so personal. Yeah. Um, and I think with the, when you meet with other survivors and you can actually tell your story and you can say those things, I was angry, I'm angry. Um, I felt that he shouldn't have done that. I felt that he let us down. Mm. You can't say those things to the general public because then they wonder what's wrong with you. Yeah. But the other, another survivor understands because they felt it too. Yeah. So uh, uh, out of this uh, terrible tragedy uh, and experience with your brother, uh, as we said, you not only um, found and then became a leader uh, with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, but you also found a, a way to 
um, help honor him and maybe at the same time uh, provide a resource to folks who may, uh, like him, uh, come out of some type of, of military service that may have uh, in some way have contributed to uh, suicidal thoughts uh, by establishing the Sergeant Walter Padilla Memorial Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that and um, how that is working. Okay, so it's, 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 it's an information repository. I have a lot of veterans who contact me um, because the conventional methods of treating post-traumatic stress aren't working, and they are literally at their wit's end. So I connect them to complementary and alternative approaches to post-traumatic stress. So instead of, you know, here's the name of a therapist, here's the name of, you know, a psychiatrist you can see, um, I've connected people to uh, let's get a free, you know, get a service dog. Um, there's a retreat going on for two weeks in Peru. Would you be interested in going to something like that? And I can tell you that overwhelmingly the response has been positive. Um, I connect them to earth-centered therapy where they go kind of work on a farm for a month and just integrate their trauma. Um, so for a lot of these folks who come back who conventional medicine doesn't help, they find this um, human-centered, I guess, human-centered kind of centered approach much more helpful. That's great. So uh, before we uh, bid you farewell and once again remind folks that there are resources for you uh, if you know of someone who is uh, even talking about or you think is contemplating suicide, uh, your law enforcement and emergency responders in your own community are trained and able to deal with it from the dispatcher on down to those responders uh, by calling 911. If you think you may need uh, some assistance or support uh, yourself as a survivor or someone who's a survivor of uh, or a loved one uh, of an individual who's attempted suicide, uh, you can go through 211 info line um, or you can reach out to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and especially for those survivors uh, who are looking for uh, someone else to talk to, maybe a place to find relief as Jania did um, on November 21st or any day you can get in touch with the uh, AFSP. Uh, Jania, one more time, if we could get the website or any other uh, resource numbers or addresses, uh, I'd, uh, I'd like to share that one more time. Sure. It's www.afsp.org. Um, you will find a listing there for the Survivor Days for support groups, um, as well as upcoming community walks. And, John, just a quick um, addendum to what you said about being concerned. If you are concerned about someone who you know who may be having thoughts of suicide, have the conversation with them. Okay. Oftentimes I, I, I deal with a lot of folks who, who have thoughts and they say that, you know, thank you for asking the question. I feel the relief was immediate. So I know it can be daunting and very scary, but to ask someone if they're having thoughts of suicide and letting them know that you care um, is often very effective. Mm. It, it, it is the uh, the main component. Uh, the first question, uh, essentially, you you ask in the course of mental health first aid, um, uh, you know, to be able to establish uh, a baseline for where that individual might be at that you're encountering. Uh, certainly, asking that question uh, can, in some ways, I guess, really. 
make the change for the individual who's considering it uh, to just kind of, um, you know, have the mirror held up to them. So I, I appreciate that final point, Johnia, and uh, I wish you best of luck. Uh, I'll be thinking about you on, on November 21st and uh, um, all the other folks that we've had the pleasure of meeting uh, through our association with you and both the Southern and Northern Connecticut chapters of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, best of luck with your foundation, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you again soon uh, to continue this uh, this outreach and education. Thanks for being part of the program. So anyone who uh, might have gone out to any of the MS uh, bike events or walk events uh, has certainly seen our radio stations represented. We love being a partner with the a multiple sclerosis society connecticut chapter national multiple sclerosis society connecticut chapter i should say uh and we are in studio today with jacqueline sembor and cynthia bitterini uh both communication specialists uh, jacqueline is a senior specialist and cynthia is associate vice president of communications for the national ms society connecticut chapter uh so we're going to do some looking back and looking forward and also taking a few minutes to remind people about uh where the money goes and how the outreach and support works uh, when you participate, uh, whether you were uh, on a team or a team captain or you biked uh, and got others to do it. Uh, every dollar that you earned helped the cause, and uh, it's pretty exciting to be involved with uh, for folks uh, that may have been longtime listeners. Uh, I had a, a, a loved one who lived with MS uh, more than 30 years, and uh, these uh, folks at the National MS Society uh, always uh, were uh, able uh, resources with great information. So uh, we want to share that with the thousands of families that might be within the sound of our voice who are also uh, dealing with that diagnosis or uh, with an individual who may have been diagnosed some time ago who haven't yet started to take advantage of the resources. So uh, ladies, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. First yeah. of all, uh, let's look back on uh, on 2015. You're sort of in that lull period where you're kind of celebrating the successes, but also gearing up and planning for 2016. Uh, let's look back first and talk a little bit about uh, where you folks stand right now as a result of all of the great uh, volunteerism that came together uh, to benefit the chapter. Sure. We had a fabulous turnout for our Walk MS event in 2015 in the spring. Um, we raised over $1.4 million to help support um, families with multiple sclerosis. And um, it was um, one big party after another. And I think folks came out, they had a great time. They felt the energy. They felt excited about being able to really help those people who, who have the disease. Yeah. The, the thing that was awesome for me at the, at the Litchfield event was um, not just all the folks who were rallying around with shirts or banners and placards representing the person that they were walking or running for, uh, but so many people that that uh, have MS come out to these events and 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 participate. They they go, you had you, you had bikers with multiple sclerosis and walkers, uh, whether they were walking themselves or being pushed in a wheelchair. There were there were a lot of participation and inspiration from folks that were touched by multiple sclerosis. The one big thing that we love to share with our audience and everybody who comes out to our events is to 
be sure that they recognize that we specifically choose all of those locations to be fully accessible. So somebody who does need to use a cane or a walker or has a power wheelchair or needs to be pushed, they can participate. There, There's no barriers at the locations that we choose for them because we want them to feel like a, a loved member of our community. They can participate. They can come out. They can be there. They can experience it. And even if they don't want to participate in the walk and, and go those two-and-a-half or five-mile routes, they can, they can stay at the, the finish line. They can cheer people on. They can volunteer. They can hang out with the wonderful folks from the mm-hmm. radio stations. Mm-hmm. There's always something going on, a lot of festivities and things to do. So we invite everybody to come out and just be a part of it and, and see what we have to offer. Yeah, and, and the great thing about these events uh, that, that uh, MS hosts throughout the state of Connecticut, they happen at various times. Uh, n- nobody's calendar is so full that they can't target one of the dates, even if they've got to travel a little bit to participate. And you do b- provide a, a great variety of things people could do. Um, and these are the individuals that like doing that strategic kind of one-off philanthropy but there are also a lot of opportunities for volunteerism year-round even if you're somebody who has knows nobody who's uh, been touched by multiple sclerosis right absolutely we have people who come into the office and volunteer for us to help us do some administrative work Um, people can volunteer at some of these large events we also have a number of people who participate in the do-it-yourself event fundraising events where they might have uh, a family member or they themselves may have multiple sclerosis and they want to do something and they want to volunteer in that respect so they might hold a big um, party or a dinner or um, we had one fellow who um, kayaked across uh, the sound Mm. um, and all in that same spirit and effort to help raise money for for MS. And, and you folks do a great job uh, enlisting corporate sponsorship as well, which is a which is a critical partner in Connecticut. Absolutely, we have for a walk. We've had travelers um, who has been our um, title sponsor for years, and we we really couldn't do these events without them. And Praxair has been a wonderful sponsor for our bike event. Excellent. So uh, uh, looking forward with the short lens, uh, uh, are you folks indeed done for the year? Uh, and so, uh, or, or, or what's, uh, what's left in store for folks before we start looking forward to uh, a full schedule of uh, planned events for 2016? Sure. So before we finish out this, this year, we actually have a, a very large gala that's taking place next Thursday in Stamford. Um, speaking of corporate sponsorship, it's a, a gala that will recognize Margaret Keene, who's the president and CEO of Synchrony Financial down in Stamford. Um, she has really rallied her troops and her employees, and they've reached out to their networks. And it's going to be one. It's going to be the largest gala we've ever had, thanks to her and and her network and all of the support who's really behind her. Um, and that'll be, like I said, next Thursday. That's the and 19th. then, yep, and next the Thursday, the yep. 19th down in Stanford. And after that, it really is preparing for Walk MS, which will be in April. That's our next huge event. Before that, obviously, um, March is MS Awareness Month. And we'll have MS Awareness Week nestled within that. And we'll have our State Action Day, where all of our activists and legislators will be at the state capitol meeting and sharing our priorities for the year. Um, so we have a lot of stuff going on. We have programs, we have services, we have advocacy, and we have fundraising. But 
we really try to span the gamut and, and come at MS from all sides. Excellent. Well, let's uh, review uh, for the folks who uh, may be opening up their calendars and, and getting ready for 2016. Um, the first event on the schedule is at Jennings Beach in Fairfield uh, on April 16th. Then the next day, Sunday, April 17th, uh, there's one at Camp Harkness in Waterford uh, at Cheshire High School, a, a huge event in Cheshire, uh, at the University of Connecticut West Hartford campus, and in Simsbury at the Westminster School. Uh, these are all walks, or are these a mixture of walks and bikes? Those are all walks, yep. So that first weekend is all walk, and then we'll have the... We are a beneficiary of the Ion Bank Cheshire Half Marathon, which actually takes place on April 24th. So we will have a team of runners um, the week following the first walk. So mm. we'll have walk, and then we'll have run, and then we'll go right back to walk. Okay, and that's Cove Island Park in Stamford on Saturday, April 30th, and at Rentschler Field in East Hartford uh, also on that same day, Saturday, April 30th, and then the next day, Sunday, May 1st, uh, at the Litchfield Town Green, where I'm hoping to uh, return to help uh, with that event, and at the same time in West Haven at West Haven High School. So uh, we're looking at April 16th and 17th, and April 30th and May 1st, and um, uh, how about for... Uh, uh, for the bikes for bike bike is always in june so it'll be sunday june 5th 5th which is in windsor at griffin land mm-hmm. um they've been our our host for many many years we have a f- kitty ride we have a 10 mile ride 25 50 all the way up to a, a 100 mile ride um and then we will do it all over again sunday june 12th down in norwalk at longshore pavilion at the cove and these bike rides are great they really are mapped out to provide a not only a, a you know a semi-challenging course at the highest level but also incorporate uh whether it's in the uh, the, the northern northeastern part of the state uh, up in the hills or out on the coast in norwalk uh, it's a great opportunity for folks uh that want to get uh, behind the wheel of their bikes whether they're flat Scheduling riders that want to do a short course or the hardcore folks uh, that want to go up to 100 miles. A great opportunity. So they can all gain uh, access to registrations and team formation support at which website? They can, they can go to um, our website, which is ctfightsms.org. Excellent. And they can link on to, to um, information about walk and bike and any um, a number of any other of our events. Excellent. Uh, in the last few minutes that we have, then, uh, let's uh, take it one step further and talk about some of the different ways that the National MS Society, uh, Connecticut, and its uh, chapters throughout uh, the country uh, are utilizing funds raised at all these events to then turn it around back to the community, uh, supporting individuals and families with multiple sclerosis. What are a couple of the most popular uh, support programs or initiatives that you guys are mounting um, that seem to really resonate and draw folks. Uh, I'm sure you can't count the amount of times you've heard people say, boy, I wish I knew that this service was available or this support was available sooner, right? Right. No, absolutely. We offer a wide variety of programs for for not only the individuals that are living with MS, but for their families, because multiple sclerosis is a disease that affects not only the individual, but the entire family. We have support group programs. Um, We have programs for those who are newly diagnosed. Um, Every year we offer scholarships to students who 
are diagnosed with MS or they have a parent who has been diagnosed with MS. Um, and we're very proud to support um, those students. Um, so many different programs. I think one of the most popular is uh, Vacation Week. Mm-hmm which we hold, and it really enables individuals who have MS to be able to go out and enjoy a week of vacation time, and they wouldn't be able to do that um, on their own. So the MS Society is critical um, in helping those people get that little bit of R&R that they so deserve and enjoy year in and year out. Excellent. So uh, access to those resources and many ideas about fundraising, including ways to sign up yourself or your team for either the walk or the bike or several of them, uh, all once again at this website? ctfightsms.org. Absolutely. There's um, a calendar listing on there, links to all of our fundraising events, um, and and programs and services that we offer. Excellent. Wrapping up the program with our uh, our friend Jacqueline Sembor and a brand new friend to the program, Cynthia Bitterini, uh, both representing the National MS Society Connecticut chapter. Thanks, guys, for being part of the program this morning. Thank You've been listening to our award-winning public affairs program for the people. The opinions expressed on this broadcast represent those of our guests and hosts and don't necessarily represent the views of Connoisseur Media. If you have a suggestion for a guest, an issue, or a community calendar item relevant to the audience and communities we serve, you must make your request for consideration in writing via email to me at john.vocat, V as in Victor, O-K-E-T, at connoisseurct. We do not accept pitches or requests for coverage by phone. Remember, no part of this program may be copied, disseminated, or rebroadcast. Our public file reflecting the full scope of our station's responsiveness to critical issues in the communities we serve can be viewed upon request weekdays during normal business hours at 440 Wheeler's Farms Road in Milford. Our theme music is by Rick Miller and Scott, with original music by Noel Vayette. This is John Voquette, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Join us again at this time next week for another installment of the award-winning For the People, or listen to this and other For the People podcasts under the podcast tab on our station's website or on iTunes. Until this time next week, thanks for listening.